Thank you, friends, for joining us this morning. And Steve, thank you so much for reading our passage. Just a quick reminder to you, friends, the reason, there's a couple of reasons why we ask members of our congregation to read Scripture each Sunday morning. And one of those is because they do a pretty doggone good job. But another is this. Don't forget that as a body of believers, we've covenanted together with one another to know who the body of Christ is and to support one another. So anytime someone comes up here to the front that you don't know, man, there should be a little flag in your mind that says, I got to meet that person. And if you don't know Steve, let me tell you, it is worth meeting him. Just a terrific guy. He is headed to help with Calvary Kids right now. Quick plug for Calvary Kids. My uh, wife and I and my son worked there last Sunday, and we always enjoy it. We got to work with the fourth and fifth graders, had a great time down there. If you are at a stage of life where you realize, I don't have kids in that age group anymore, that's okay. We actually could use some help from people that maybe are interested in finding out more about how there's some help that you can provide. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be assigned to a specific age group, nor does it mean that you have to work every Sunday or once a month or whatever. But if you are curious about what it takes to be a part of Calvary Kids, let me encourage you to see Nathaniel, the guy who was on our piano this morning. Talk to him. He'd be happy to tell you more. But get involved. Find out more about all the people that do our reading for us. And if we haven't selected you yet, we'll get to you. And if we haven't allowed you to read yet and you really want to, come see me. Um, I I assure you that we're not trying to skip anyone or overlook anyone. But if you'd like to know more about any of the programs that we offer, please ask. We'd love for you to embrace the body of believers that way. Would you bow with me as we begin this morning? God, thank you so much for your word. I praise you for our journey through the Psalms. God, what an incredible time it's been over these last several years. And I'm, I'm certainly thankful for a chance to open up the word today. I praise you for the encouragement that we find in it, God, for the way that it captures our imaginations and our hearts. God, I pray that we wouldn't just appreciate it for its literary value, but may we see the divine work of the Holy Spirit actively moving, influencing us, changing us from the inside out. God, the simple truth is that Hebrews 4 verse 12 makes it plainly clear what your word is for. It's alive and it's active. It pierces to the dividing of soul and spirit. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God, may my heart today, even as I'm here speaking, God, may my heart be open to the influence, the power of your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit's presence, God. And so I pray for your strength, God. I pray that what we discussed today from your word, I pray that it would, that it would encourage and guide and strengthen and prompt us and instill us with a a sense of incredible honor at the opportunity of living for your glory. So I praise you again for today. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're new to Calvary, thank you again for being a part, whether you're watching online, whether you're here on person. Pastor Matt is out of town. Please pray for him. He and his wife Amy will be back in about four or five days after a a well-deserved break. And so please pray for them. They spent time in Utah, and now they're taking some time away, and they, they are, 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 I hope, having a blast. But if you're new to Calvary, we are right in the middle of our summer study, and uh, we study through the book of Psalms each year, and what a journey it's been so far. Um, only three months of our year is what we dedicate to working through this amazing book, the book of Psalms, the longest book in all of Scripture. Now, I say that it's long, and we only take three months, because <clears throat> if you've been here for a while, you know that At our current rate, 
by the end of August, we'll have completed five years worth of study with just seven more to go. So if you're brand new, don't worry, there's still plenty more to come, and I hope you'll stick around and be a part of that. All seven of those years, available online, so uh, make sure you catch up. I've really grown to love the Psalms, I hope you have as well. First and foremost, because they're filled with divine poetry. I talked about that a little bit last month. We were working our way through the prophets. I think it was actually in May. <clears throat> May. We were working our way through the prophets. And the, the, the whole impact of poetry, generally speaking, in the Word of God was, I think, for many years, lost on me. But the, the key element of poetry is that in the Psalms, each Psalm itself stirs and moves the imagination through the use of vivid, picturesque language. And that creates mental images. We don't typically have the patience for imagery like that today, right? We'd rather have a screen in front of us so we don't have to use our imagination. But if you want to know what it's like for your mind to fill in the blanks, read a book without pictures. <laughs> Listen to a podcast. Or if you're really into it like I used to be, um, try listening to one of those old-time radio programs. Any of you remember the CBS radio mystery theater? Anybody remember that? One, <laughs> two of you. I remember as a kid, because um, it was still going on in the 70s, that's when I was a kid, I remember sitting in front of the radio with my mom and trembling in fear over the spoken word during mystery theater. Why is that? Well, our mind tends to fill in the blanks. And simply put, Psalms, it's not just a run-of-the-mill rhyme and meter book. It's a book that's, that's intended to evoke imagery in the mind. It's a divinely inspired anthology. That is, it's a collection of the most famous Hebrew poems pieced together in a very specific way under the Holy Spirit's leading for God's specific purposes. Now, to take it a step further, it's not just one collection, but a five-volume series combined into a single literary masterpiece. In fact, I bet your Bible actually shows you where those divisions are. Psalm 1 is the beginning of Book 1, and you can flip there and see it, Book 1, Psalm 42 is the first of book two in this anthology. The other three books begin with Psalm 73, 90, and 107, and I'm only telling you that because I know some of you will flip there. So feel free, go ahead and do that. Now, of course, there's an explanation for these divisions. Why are they there? Generally speaking, you can trace Israel's history chronologically if you read the Psalms in order. Now, most ancient Jewish readers tended to do what you and I would do. They would skip around to their favorites, just like we do. But generally speaking, the history is there nonetheless. Books 1 and 2 retell the story of Israel under King David's rule, all of the good, bad, and ugly moments. Book 3 describes the struggle of Israel's exile during those ex extended periods of captivity. Then there's books 4 and 5 that all look forward to a new kingdom and a new temple. And then this coming Messiah, or this Savior, or Redeemer that they don't know about at that point. Now, if you keep those basic bookmarks in mind as you read, it will help transform your understanding of the Psalms and will help you to appreciate the imagery even more. By the way, quick note, if you've never spent time browsing the short videos, now here I am talking about letting your mind fill in the, the, the images. Now I'm going to direct you to a website where there's great imagery, where there's great images, and if you haven't spent time there at BibleProject.com, let me highly encourage it. I can't recommend it strongly enough. In fact, 
if you're writing it down, there's a series at BibleProject.com called How to Read Biblical Poetry, like the Psalms. And episode three is specifically about the Psalms. So again, that's BibleProject.com, How to Read Biblical Poetry, episode three. I get no commission out of that. I just think that the videos are fantastic, and I hope you'll turn there and read it. If you're looking for a solid resource, that website would be a great place to start. Now, Psalm 57 is right in the middle of book two, 42 to 72. 57 is smack dab in the middle. So we remember that that's part of Israel's history under David. Books one and two are about that. So we know that this psalm must be linked to David's place in Israel's history. But as you might remember from George explaining last week, this one is a miktam. <clears throat> it's the second of five consecutive psalms that are referred to as miktams of David. What are they? Well, 56, 57, 58, 59, and 60 are all miktams that, without getting too far into the weeds, because there's lots of opinions about what miktam means, it likely refers to David's most memorable poems. You might remember that George said that they were the golden poems. The idea is that these would have been the writings of David that would have been engraved on buildings or statues or sculptures. And the fame of these poems would have been due in large part not only to the author, David, King David, one of the prominent figures of Israel's history, but also to the circumstances or the occasion that prompted their writing. So a miktam is from the one, one of arguably the most important poetry authors in Israel's history. These were among his most famous writings and the ones that the people of Israel would have gone to frequently. So we have five in a row here in 56 through 60. To catch a, an idea of a parallel in our modern-day thinking, think about our national anthem. When Francis Scott Key penned the lyrics to the Star-Spangled Banner, he wasn't writing a song. He certainly didn't have in mind a national anthem. He was using the vivid, picturesque language of poetry to show how deeply his heart was moved when after a night of fighting and battle and bloodshed and death during the War of 1812, <clears throat> he saw our country's flag still flying over Fort McHenry. You see, it was the circumstances more than it was the words or even the somewhat controversial author of that poem that secured its place in America's history. So it is with Psalm 57. The circumstances surrounding David's writing is what makes this poem so memorable. Take a look at the introduction. Try not to get sidetracked by the editor's note to use a, a theme called Do Not Destroy. You and I don't know that tune, or if you do, come see me. I want to hear it. Don't get sidetracked by that. Apparently, the rhyme and the meter of that particular tune fits these words well because generations of Jewish people, as you recall, sang the text that we're reading today. In fact, many of the psalms are referred to as psalms of ascent because we know that people would sing them on the way to Jerusalem. And wherever you were in the land of Israel, you ascended to Jerusalem because of its elevation. Exactly. Some of you understand that inside joke if you were in my Acts class. But the idea is that as they went to the holy city, as they journeyed there, they would often sing the words that you and I are reading today. So for centuries, these words and many others were sung by the Jewish people. I told you not to get sidetracked as I'm getting sidetracked by it. The real acclaim for this famous poem, this miktam, is expressed in that last part. Notice what it says. A miktam of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Now, we read over those words and kind of nod our heads and think, okay, that's great. Man, don't miss this. 
We don't know specifically which cave the editors are referring to, and perhaps they didn't actually know either, but it honestly doesn't even matter. The important thing to know is that David was running for his life. He was somewhere in that desolate wilderness region of southern Israel, somewhere around the Dead Sea, trying to avoid detection. He was constantly on the move. He likely didn't spend too much time in any one cave, but he was constantly around all sorts of different parts, different caves in that region. The reason I tell you that is because I think that this was one of the low points of David's life. I think it was very discouraging, one of the most discouraging points in his young adult life. He'd already worn out his welcome in King Saul's palace after years of enjoying the admiration of all Israel as their favorite son. He soon began to sense, though, that the king was becoming jealous. It doubtless got on Saul's nerves that everyone saw David as the golden boy, the boy chosen by God to rule all Israel someday. But Saul wasn't quite ready to hand over the throne just yet. His resentment grew so deep that he threatened something that's unimaginable to us today. He threatened to kill David. He actually tried. And so David was forced to run for his life. And as if fleeing from Saul wasn't enough, David was eventually chased into enemy territory. So basically, everywhere he turned, someone was trying to kill him. You think you've got it bad. I have a bad day when I break a fingernail. Everywhere he looks, someone's trying to kill him. Read the entire nerve-wracking account in 1 Samuel chapters 19 through 24 to catch the context of what David was going through. Now, the reason I parked there for a minute, folks, is I can't underscore strongly enough how that impacted David's writing here. Think about it. You and I are impacted by the day that we've had already. When you came to church, you had some form of baggage already. And isn't it, parents of little kids, isn't it always on your way to church that you have the most difficult time getting out of the door, out the door, and it, it does not matter how prepared you are, some incident happens that never happens, and you walk into church oftentimes out of breath, wondering what's happening. I want to have a spirit of worship, and yet it's difficult. David had experienced a level of nerve-wracking, life-threatening struggle that you and I probably will never know. But let me pose this rhetorical question. What would you do? What would you do? Let's suppose it's you. You've got nowhere to go, nowhere to hide. All hope seems lost. It's just a matter of time until you're cornered and you inevitably dread what's going to happen because you know that it's, it's going to come. To make matters worse, the passage in 1 Samuel 19-24 that I mentioned, it points out to us that there were 600 men with their families that were following David around, pleading with him to be their leader. So not only is he in hiding, I mean, it's almost like he's saying, get away, get away. But he's living in caves. 600 men and their families are following him, and now he's responsible for a lot of people that are depending on him. You ever feel like that? I'm responsible for people. I feel cornered. I'm not sure where to turn. I don't know what the next answer is, and I got people looking to me for answers. I think David's response in Psalm 57 underscores what I believe God has called you and I to do when life seems impossible. How do we find hope in the midst of desperate times? Psalm 57 is all about finding hope in desperation. 
So let's look at David's answer. Let's find out why these eloquent words of Psalm 57 still ring true today. Look at verse 1 with me. David says, be merciful, O God, be merciful to me. Why do you think he would say that twice? Maybe you and I would say the same thing if we're in the back of a cave, right? Not sure where the next meal is going to come from. Not sure if we'll survive the day. I want to park here in a minute. I won't do it yet. For in you, my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Now, if you're like me, an old hymn is going through your mind as you read that last phrase. Till the storm passes over, till the thunder sounds no more, till the clouds roll forever from the sky. Hold me fast, let me stand in the hollow of thy hand. Keep me safe till the storm passes by. That's a freebie for people that are old like me. Maybe the text of Scripture there reminds you of God's provision, but I want to reveal to you what I think David is really pointing out as we look at one specific word. Because first, I really believe David's first way to find hope is to surrender your all to God. Surrender your all to God. And you might miss it if you're not careful. Focus on that word soul with me for a moment. See it? I think that's key to understanding the entire rest of the psalm. And the reason I want to point it out is because we typically use the word soul today in reference to our innermost being, right? We're soul brothers. We say things like, he's an old soul or she's a kind soul. And what we mean is that they're experiencing some aspect of life on a deeper, more profound level. That's what soul means to us. But the ancient Hebrew word nefesh had a very different meaning. There's your Hebrew word for the day, right? Nefesh. It literally meant your whole self, everything, not just the inside and the outside, but the upside and downside and every other side you can imagine. All of it combined, every bit. It's your past, your present, and your future, as well as all of your hopes, your dreams, your aspirations, even so far as your potential, anything you could think of that might impact who you are, completely and totally you. See, that's the, that's the idea of nefesh, and what does David say about it? He says, in you, my soul, that, all of it, takes its refuge. In verse 1, David says that all of that, all of his being, finds its hope in God and in him alone. And without saying it directly, David was hinting at this fact that there's only one solution for all of his problems. One answer to all of his questions. Tucked away in that little phrase, in you, my soul takes refuge, is the assurance that God is the one to whom he could turn when... The pressures of leadership seemed overwhelming. When he didn't know if he was going to survive the day. When he felt trapped with nowhere else to turn and on and on and on. The power to endure comes from God. Not from my own strength or my own force of will, my own determination. See, that's what it means to say, in you my soul takes refuge. I'm turning to you, God, with total abandonment. I can't do any of it. I'm turning to you. Now, that idea of complete submission to God is affirmed several times, not only in this psalm, Psalm 57, but elsewhere as well. But look at verse 2. David asserts, I cry out to God. Verses 5 and 11, be exalted, O God. You be lifted up, God, not me. As well as I give thanks to you, O Lord. That's verse 9. See, there's no mistaking where David puts his trust. It's a common theme in psalms and elsewhere. Really, all of Scripture echoes this same basic principle. Endurance begins with dependence. Endurance, biblically, begins 
with dependence. Isaiah 40, 31 puts it this way. You know the verse. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. So how do I get strong? Well, I muscle up. No, I wait for the Lord. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. How does all that happen? By waiting. What? But that's exactly what David is saying here. It's in you my soul takes refuge, God. Everything that I am, all of it, no matter how strong, no matter how this, no matter how, no matter what got all of that, I'm going to focus on you. First Peter 5, similar idea. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Okay, so to get to that exalted position, work really hard, right? No, humble yourself completely and totally, depend and submit to him. That's not a First Peter 5 thing. <laughs> this is old as time itself. Depend on God. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's how verse 7 continues in First Peter 5. See, each of these authors understood well that struggle must give way to God-focused surrender if you, if you genuinely want to experience God's power. I think probably the most profound wording of all is in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. And this is the Apostle Paul proclaiming, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of God may rest on me. Now, I want the power of God resting on me. I just don't want the weakness part. <laughs> I like the product. I just don't like the process. But this is exactly what David is pointing out as a young man running for his life. I need you, God. It's in you. All of me, all my hope, all my potential, all my everything, the answers to these 600 plus people, all of it depends on you. You see, the divine irony of the Christian life is that we gain by losing. We make it to the front by putting ourselves in the back. We find hope for victory through surrender. It's the first way that David found great hope, and it's the exact same way, friends, for you and I today. Do we genuinely understand this basic principle? Surrender your all to God. And let me tell you something. I, I don't care how many fingers I might point out at the crowd. There are nine more, what, sorry, seven more and a couple thumbs pointing back at me. Surrender your all to God is not easier for people that stand behind this pulpit. I'm telling you, there, friends, there is something, there is a key here that should transform the way that you and I live, and it will if we'll begin to understand how it is that we truly find hope in desperate times. But notice that David doesn't stop there. Look at his second pathway, and I believe that it's described fairly clearly for us all throughout the passage. His second pathway to finding hope in desperation is to acknowledge all that God is. That's to acknowledge all that God is. Now, I love a good word study, and so I'll very quickly give you a snapshot of it. Psalm 57 uses four different Hebrew names of God. They all point to some foundational aspect of God's character. Now, four names, there's eight different times that those names are used, some are repeated. Six times out of the eight that God's name is referenced, David uses the word Elohim. You've probably heard it. It's the same word found in the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God, Elohim, 
created the heaven and the earth. It's also found, incidentally, in almost every verse of that first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1. And the idea is that God, Elohim, is the originator of everything, the one true divine being from whom everyone and everything is derived. That's Elohim. Incidentally, it also has a plural interpretation as well as singular, which is why you hear passages like, let's make, God, let's make man, God says, let's make man in our image. I believe a direct reference to the Trinitarian nature of God. All of that is contained in the word Elohim. He is our originator. He's the originator, the one true divine being, and this use of Elohim literally bookends Psalm 57 for a purpose. Notice, it's used in both the first and the last verses. The word God used in verse 1 and verse 11 is the same word Elohim. I don't think that's by accident. I think David's emphasizing God's greatness, his rule, his sovereignty as the Alpha and Omega. Before I was, he was. Before anything began, he was. And after everything ends, he will be. The Alpha and Omega, the beginning and end. And I believe here that David is acknowledging all that God is, even in that one small little word. But take a look at verse 2. David mentions three important names of God all in a row, and if we're, unless we're careful, we'll miss it. Again, there's a purpose to this word choice, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, as David writes. Verse 2, I cry out to God, most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. Now, there's three names of God that are mentioned here. I want to very quickly show you what they are. The first occurrence of God, I cry out to God. That's the word Elohim, what we were just talking about. But the second is El Elyon, which is translated here as Most High. We don't see Most High as a name of God, but it is. It's El Elyon. The implication is that there's no greater court of appeal, no higher jurisdiction. So Most High is translated elsewhere as Most High God. This is a name of God. So God, Elohim, Most High, El Elyon. There is no higher appeal, no higher jurisdiction, none who compare. It's like David saying that, I want the lawyer who's never lost a case. When you're desperate, you want the best. David's use of El Elyon here reminds us that there's no authority greater than or even equal to God's. Any of our own solutions to life's troubles are at best temporary. Ultimately, they're ineffective. Only God has the ultimate power to rescue. But then there's a third word that's used. The third time God occurs in this verse is through the use of the basic form El, E-L. It's a common Hebrew way to show God's ownership. You'll see it often added to the names of people or places. Common examples in Scripture are names like Bethel, house of God, right? Daniel, that's Daniel. God is my judge, or Samuel, God has heard, many, many others. Anytime you see the word El attached to another word, it's that concept of God as owner. David's point is to show that we belong to God, we're precious to him. So if you put these three names of God, God, Most High, God, put those three together, and here's what you find. I'm appealing, David says, to the source, the originator of all. There's no higher authority than the one to whom I belong, because he is the one who will accomplish his perfect work in my life, or as the verse says, who fulfills his purpose for me. Now, let me tell you something, friends. You begin to catch a glimpse of that, and then you begin to see what it means to acknowledge all that God is. But there is one more name of God that's mentioned in this passage, and I want to point it out quickly. You'll find it in verse 9. Take a look. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. 
That's Lord with a capital L only, right? That's the Hebrew word Adonai as opposed to Lord in all caps. Who is Lord in all caps as you see it throughout the Psalms and the rest of the Old Testament? That is, yeah, Yahweh, Jehovah, right? The covenant name of God. That is the name that God, the personal name of God that he gave to Moses at the burning bush. When Moses said, who should I say sent me? He said, tell them that I am sent you. The self-existent one. I need no one. I need nothing. I don't need the world, I don't need air or breathe, I don't need care, I don't need compassion, I don't need food, water, I don't even need reality in which to exist. I am self-existent. That's Yahweh, Jehovah. All caps, capital L-O-R-D. This is different, though. This is Lord with a capital L only. Adonai, which refers to God as our master or as our overseer. In other words, he has the right to do as he pleases. His will is infinitely more important than mine. I am subject to him. No accident that David finds hope not only in God's greatness, but also in his fullness. He's Elohim, the originator, the creator. He's Elohim, the most high, the one who's exalted. There is no greater jurisdiction. I belong to him. I'm possessed. He possesses me. I'm precious to him. Adonai, he's my master, he's my overseer. Whatever it is that my mind sees to do, it pales. There is no comparison to what God is doing. David finds God's greatness, God's fullness, compelling enough to point out to you and I, friends, to acknowledge all that God is. Lastly, briefly, the final means of finding hope and desperation is to glorify God with all your praise. Notice the rest of the passage And I think what's most ironic to me is that while David is holed up in a cave running for his life, his focus is not on his circumstances and how bad things have gotten. I think that's where my focus would be. Look around. Does this look like paradise? Does this look like God's blessing? But no. David doesn't waste time complaining. Instead, he goes on and on and on about God's love and faithfulness, about his mercy and his protection. In verse 7, he proclaims, I will sing and make melody. See it? He was literally celebrating. Can you imagine? (laughs) You know what it takes to rain on my parade? That annoying guy in traffic who's going too slow. (laughs) And yet here's David in the midst of horrifying life circumstances, and he is just raining down the love of God. I can do that when things are great, but when my life is at stake, I don't know. Probably not so much. Not David. He insists that people from every land pick up their musical instruments, lift God's praise above the heavens, over all the earth. And in fact, in verse 8, look at what he says, I will awake the dawn. In other words, I'll challenge the sun to rise by the sheer force of my praise to God. And then he explains why in verse 10. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. The majesty of God far supersedes whatever praise I might give him. He's worthy of my worship. What's more, his glory is over all the earth, that phrasing in verse 11. I think what's so crucial about this understanding, friends, is that even at this young stage of life, David knew something important about suffering, which is that it always draws us closer to to the God who we praise. He found hope in the most devastating circumstances of life. How did he do it? Well, by surrendering his all to God, by acknowledging all that God is, by glorifying God with all his praise. I think there's more to it. 
But these three basic principles scream from the mountaintops how to find hope in desperation. Now, are you struggling today? What are you going through? Chances are you're either coming out of a struggle, you're in the middle of one, or you're headed towards one, right? And we all fear that last one the most. And let me tell you, I, if I write down this outline, I can probably find a way to remember, oh, surrender, okay, God, I'm surrendering. Oh, acknowledge God for who you are. Okay, God, I give you glory. But these aren't just rote exercises to be uttered in prayer, are they? Can we just pray, God, I surrender to you, or can we live it? Can I tell God, yeah, I know who, who you are, you're great, you're majestic, or can I live like it's true? Can I talk about his glory, or can I really, genuinely, and earnestly strive that he might fill the earth with it and allow me to be a part of that process? Because I think, friends, when we begin to grasp that, we begin to understand the true nature of what it's like to find hope in desperation. May we find the hope that David found in God through life's most intense struggles. In fact, may we conclude like Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10, that when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Would you bow with me? God, I praise you for who you are. I thank you. Thank you for the simple truth from Psalm 57 that, God, you've called us to surrender our will to you, to acknowledge you, to glorify you. Those are all, those are all principles that I, I really believe I know. I've heard them before. They're nothing new. And yet the living out of those basics during a time of, of extreme stress, that's so difficult, God. So I thank you for the example in your word from David. I pray for myself as well as all these friends, God, that our ability to find hope in desperation would stem not from our own character, not from our striving just to do better, but through the example of your word.